of Israel were off at war, and instead of being with his troops, David, the king, is at home in Jerusalem. But he's not considering God's purposes in warring against the Ammonites. Instead, he's more concerned about what he wants. He goes up on his patio, overlooks his kingdom, decides there's nothing he can't have. He sees Bathsheba, and he sends for her. It's safe to assume that she had no choice in the matter. And a few weeks go by, and then David receives word from Bathsheba that she is expecting. And thus the campaign begins. David starts devising a plan to cover his tracks. The first thing he does is he sends for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, who's off at war. And he sends him, or he sends for Uriah under the guise of just simply wanting an update on how things are going. And Uriah is one of David's most trusted confidants. He's a part of his inner circle. He's one of his dearest friends because he was one of David's mighty men. And so Uriah returns and he gives a report to David and David says, great, thanks. And why don't you go see Bathsheba? Why don't you head home, get some rest, and then you can head back out tomorrow. But Uriah refuses to go see Bathsheba for reasons that we will talk about later on. But David's problem is bigger now. Uriah won't go see Bathsheba, and so the wheels keep turning. So he sends Uriah back to the battlefield, and he also sends a messenger to tell Joab, his general, to put Uriah on the front lines and then to withdraw support. David sends Uriah on a secret death mission, and Uriah is killed. And then David brings Bathsheba into his own home to be the kind king that marries her to provide for her and comfort the grieving widow. And everything is going according to plan, and nobody will ever know. And then the baby's born. And then Nathan walks into the throne room one day, nine months later, and he says, O king, he says, in a certain city there's two men. There's a rich man that has many flocks and many herds, and there's a poor man that only has one lamb. And that lamb is all he could ever afford. And that lamb is very precious to him, and he's raised it as one of his own children. And the rich man had a guest that came to his house, but he didn't want to give up one of his lambs, and so instead he went to the poor man's house and stole his lamb to provide for his guest. And after hearing this, David, the shepherd, that hits home. And he becomes enraged. And he says, who is this man? Has he no pity on the poor man? Where's his sense of justice? Bring him to me at once. I want him dead because I am a king of justice. And Nathan says to him, the greatest one-liner of all time, you are the man. You are the man. In four words, David's life comes crashing down. You were the man. You could imagine the guilt and the crushing shame that he felt in that moment when his sins finally found him out. And he looked at all the devastation, all the people he hurt. Why? It's for him. It's because he wanted to. And in that place of guilt and shame, he sat down and he wrote Psalm 51. Did you bring any guilt or shame with you this morning? 
Guilt from something you did years ago. Guilt from a decision you made this week. Words you said you can't ever take back. A decision you made that you can never undo. Some of us never think about guilt and shame. But I know there's others of you that think about it all the time. You know the weight of guilt and shame, of regret, and you feel stuck with it. It feels stuck on you and it feels stuck in you. And even coming to church at at times can be hard because you feel as though you don't belong. Because that's what guilt and shame do is they make you feel like you're on the outside looking in and that God doesn't really want anything to do with you. But to ask a simple question based on Psalm 51 in this story, have you ever considered the possibility that maybe all of that is exactly why you are here? Whether it's your first time or your 500th time being here, perhaps that's the reason you're here. That's the reason God brought you here, not because he's done with you, but because he wants to do something new in you. Maybe you have it all wrong. Maybe you feel the way you do is because God is drawing near to you. Think about it. Think about the story that you hold to. Who are the three characters in the Bible, in the biblical story, that wrote some of the largest portions of Scripture and are its three most influential characters outside of Jesus? It's Moses, it's David, and it's Paul. And all three of them are murderers. This faith that we have is built on God going to the ones that are stuck in guilt and shame. We forget how scandalous the gospel is in this story that we hold dear. And so we treat these stories that, that we read as though it's, that's like a special case of God's mercy and forgiveness. That's not true. These stories reveal the very character of God. And your story is no less scandalous. And their best days came after their greatest failures. Which means that the one thing that cannot be said if you trust in the words of Scripture is that there's a sin that you have committed, there's a choice that you've made, or something you've done that exhausts God's love and mercy and forgiveness towards you. Nor is there anything that you've done that disqualifies you from knowing the joy of an intimate relationship with him. And that is the invitation of Psalm 51. That's what it holds out to you. It's the opportunity for restoration and to be cleansed and for new life. But the only way you can have that is through repentance. And it's the only way. So how does David show us in Psalm 51 what repentance looks like? What's the roadmap? Well, quite frankly, on, uh, Psalm 51 is such a rich passage that you could do an entire sermon series on it. And I wish we had the time. But this morning, let's just allow David to ask us two questions. Do you see your sin and do you see your standard? Do you see your sin and do you see your standard? Look at how David describes uh, two realities in the first two verses. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, right off the bat, Psalm 51 shows you that repentance begins by holding two realities in tension. It begins by holding together the fact that, one, I'm an absolute sinner. And number two, I have an absolutely merciful God. 
Now, if we're honest, we often want to bypass the sinner part and we want to jump right to the abundant mercy part and the abounding in steadfast love part. And we're always looking for, you know, a side road, a side road that will lead us to intimacy with God that doesn't require that we take a look at the sin that separates us from him. So maybe we try to look for that side road to intimacy and maturity and relationship with God through study and learning, or we do it through service and good deeds, or we do it through setting a a regular prayer devotional life, and those are all good and necessary things. But you can still do those things out of a heart that wants to keep God at arm's length. And that's what the Pharisees were all stars at. Because doing those things can still come out of a heart that says, God, I want to know you, but I don't want you to know me. I want to to study your attributes, but I don't want to study the attributes of my insecurity, of my vanity, of my pride, my greed, my anger, my lust. I just want to gloss over the sin part. I want Easter without Good Friday. And this is what Psalm 51 is going to teach us. You cannot know more of who God is without knowing more of who you are. You cannot know more of who God is without knowing more of who you are. There's no avenue to God that doesn't first go through the confrontation of being, or the, being presented with your own depravity. Think about it. It makes no sense to think that there's some person out there that just has this incredibly intimate relationship with God and at the same time has zero concept or understanding or mindfulness of their own sin. Remember Isaiah 6. He comes into the throne room of God, into his presence, and what's the first thing he recognizes and says? He says, woe is me. I am unclean, I am filthy, and I am dirty. You cannot know more of God without knowing more of who you are. And we see the same thing with David. He moves towards God's presence, and he's, but it's accompanied by this deep understanding of what is within him and who he is. He comes to a recognition of the sin and iniquity that's within him. He describes it as though he is a piece of filthy, soiled laundry. It's, a, it's this profound uncleanness and dirtiness and filth of the soul that he now sees. And he can't do anything about it no matter how much he tries. Now, the question is, do you see your sin that way? Is that how you see your own sin? The truth is, generally, we don't see it that way. Instead, we minimize it, and we view it as something smaller than it actually is. And one of the ways that we minimize it is through comparing it with others, and perhaps you've already done that this morning with David. Because even in considering his language about his own sin, you've already thought, Well, of course he felt that way. Look at what he did. I'd feel that way too if I murdered somebody. What have we done? We've already used somebody else's sin to minimize our own and to see it as something smaller than it actually is. So out of that comparison, we start treating our own sin as though it's it's a simple infraction compared to the sin of another. So we start to think things like, you know, the laws I've broken are really more like guidelines or suggestions. It's like getting a speeding ticket. Everybody breaks those. Nobody gets hurt. You pay the fine. 
you do your best not to do it again, you try and be careful, and you go on. Because on the whole, you think you're a law-abiding citizen. And we never get to the place where we see our sin the way David sees his. Because we don't actually feel that we need to. And that's a big problem. Why? Because now you have to answer the question, if your sin isn't that bad, then why did Jesus have to die for it? If sin is just simply something simple and it's just a a breaking of a few laws that really aren't that big of a deal, you have to recognize that that actually makes the gospel the dumbest story on the planet. Because what idiot is going to offer their life to pay for your parking ticket? You can't go and say on the one hand that my sin isn't that bad and live that way and then on the other hand say, yes, Christ died for my sin. My problem required the very death of God. How can we intimately know the Christ that hung on the cross without knowing why he's there in the first place? When we minimize our sin and minimize our sin problem, then the cross really no longer becomes an expression of God's love to you. It's just an expression of overkill. The way that you see your sin affects how you see God. There's a second way that we minimize our sin that actually takes a little bit more thought. But it's this. We use the righteous man to avoid our sin. What do I mean by that? We use the righteous man to avoid our sin. Well, remember when Uriah came home and after he gave his report, he wouldn't go down and see Bathsheba. Why? Well, it's because Israel was at war. And one of the things that was required for soldiers when Israel was at war was for for them to remain celibate. It's part of the consecration of themselves, where God said, you have to remain celibate and you have to devote your entire being to my purposes and my plans. You will set yourselves apart and you will be wholly, utterly devoted to me. And so, that's why Uriah said, no, I'm not going to go down to my wife while my, my men are off at war on the battlefield. I'm not going to profane what God has called me to. And so, unlike David, Uriah chooses righteousness before God instead of choosing or instead of satisfying his own desires. And so what does David do? Well, he has Uriah, the righteous man, killed so that he can cover his tracks and not have to face the sin that he had committed and the consequences it caused. Now, how easy is it for us to do the exact same thing? To use the righteous man to avoid our sin. You know, we recognize that we've done something wrong or that there's sin in our life and we have issues, but we simply run very quickly to saying things like, you know, it's okay. Jesus died for my sins. I know I'm forgiven. He knows I'm not perfect. And we go on. And what are we doing? We're using the righteous man to cover our tracks so we don't have to actually take a look at the sin in our life and understand its consequences. We're using the righteous man to kind of sweep it under the rug so we don't have to actually take a look at it. And the subtle deception of that is it, it, it gives the appearance of relying upon God to rescue us as though we're running to the gospel. But in reality, all we're doing is protecting our sin by giving it an excuse to continue to exist. Because that's not real repentance. Because doing that is not really actually running to Jesus into his power It's just called running to an idea of forgiveness because there's no real desire for heart change. It's not repentance because there's no desire for that sin to be removed. 
And that's exactly what we see with David when he starts to see his sin for what it is. It's attended with this complete dependence and desire upon the mercy of God to what? To bring him new life, to do something new, to transform him. Look at all the ways that he describes it. He says, have mercy on me, cleanse me, purge me, wash me, create in me a clean heart. Let me hear joy and gladness and rejoice. Restore in me the joy of my salvation. Give me a willing spirit to obey you. And we will never ask for that new life if we're not willing to take a look at our sin and see it for what it is. And we'll never experience new life if repentance is nothing, or not repenting is nothing more than simply keeping God at arm's length. It's simply keeping him at arm's length because we don't actually want to deal with the sin that separates us from him. And repentance is that invitation that says, do you want to know God? But do you also want to know who you are? The second question we have to consider and the last question is, do you see your standard? What is your standard of right and wrong, of justice and truth, blessing? What standard are you really living by? If you look at verse 4, David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, given what David had done, adultery and murder are hardly victimless crimes. So it might look as though David is minimizing his sin by saying, Well, only against you, God, have I sinned. I don't want to deal with anybody else, just against you. But that's not what he's doing. He's not minimizing it. He's actually putting a magnifying glass on it. He's getting to the heart of the matter because he's seeing his sin in light of who God is. Because remember when Nathan came to David and confronted him, what does the Lord say to David through Nathan? He says, David, after all the times I've delivered you, after everything that I've given to you, after I took you from being a shepherd to a king, that new unlimited power. You have despised me and you have despised my word. David, I would have given you everything you asked for. I would have given you so much more, but you have despised me and you have despised my word. You see David come to that recognition in Psalm 51 because in his confession, he's come to a point where he's recognized that he has despised both his God and his God's words. He broke his word and he broke his heart. Because he claims this God who gives life and blessing, he creates man and woman in his own image. And what does David do? He tramples on it. Tramples all over Bathsheba and Uriah. What's precious to God, he uses it as a pawn in his own game for his own benefit. And God's word which is given so that man might flourish and have, have life, David despised it. And he just simply operated out of his own standards. And God's words in the end just really became negotiable. And they became negotiable when he became his own standard. And we see that in the way that he actually starts to shift blame and he becomes the voice of what is just, what is true, and in reality. Because whenever Joab sends word back to David that Uriah was killed, what does David say? He says, ah, Joab, it's okay. It was the sword of the Ammonites that killed Uriah. It's okay. These things happen in wartime. And he absolves himself of responsibility. 
We've all been there where we absolve ourselves of responsibility and operate by our own standard as to who and what is really to blame. We say, well, that, that really isn't who I am. I just had a bad day. Or sure, I said those things, but I, I didn't really mean it. Or I wouldn't have done what I did if you hadn't done what you did. And it's really the oldest play in the book. It's Adam. Well, God, it was the woman you gave me. It's Eve. Well, it was the serpent. And in these moments, when we act out of our own standards of what is true and just and good. You know, we always have the magical ability of absolving ourselves of responsibility. But that's not the David that we see in Psalm 51. He's come to the place where he now takes full responsibility for what he did. He killed Uriah. He did what he did. He says in verse 5, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What's he saying? He's saying that his sin simply isn't a moment of indiscretion or wrong action. It's his very condition. From the second he took his first breath, sinner. So why did he do what he did? Because he wanted to. He realized his actions aren't nobody or any, anybody or anything is responsible for what he did. He's the one that's responsible because that's what was in his heart. And he takes responsibility because he stops ignoring his heart. And he actually takes a look at what's in it. And when he says in verse 3, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. What's he doing? Well, he's moving back to God being the standard for his life. And when he does that, he realizes he has far more failures than just simply Bathsheba and Uriah. His heart is constantly pushing back against God's standards, and he's constantly living out of his own standards. It's the same with us, that when you actually really lay God's standards over your life, your sin will always be before you. Just from a few chapters in the New Testament, what are God's standards? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Wash one another's feet. Do not envy. Do not boast. Do not judge. Consider others more important than yourself. Outdo one another in showing honor. Be reconciled. Be patient. Be kind, be gentle. If we live as our own standard, then repentance will never, ever happen because it requires that we ignore the truth of what's really in our heart and we have to ignore God's words because there's no way that we can say that's the standard for my life and not have something to repent of. And when we do move towards God as being our standard, we do realize we have far more to repent than we ever could imagine. It's because we have a heart problem that's bigger than we ever knew. How do you apply this? Are you willing to see your sin for what it is? Do you want to see who God is? I think it requires, like we said, that you have to know who you are. So my challenge to you would begin to ask for it. Pray and ask God that he would show you the contents of your heart. Pray that you would actually see your sin and the problem of your heart for what it actually is. To actually take a look and see what's actually there. To reveal the depths of iniquity and brokenness. And that's hard. It's not easy to do. But that momentary discomfort of seeing what's in your heart is far better than the destruction of ignoring it. 
There's a new show that came out that has gotten rave reviews. It's called Chernobyl. And it's a, fi a five-part miniseries that highlights uh, the, the events whenever the Chernobyl nuclear reactor had an explosion and meltdown in 1986. And the show's gotten such good reviews because of its historical accuracy and just its attention to detail as to what really happened. And the, the reason it's unique is because up until that moment in history, a problem like that had never existed on the planet. And so nobody really knew what kind of problem they had on their hands. And one of the things that the show highlights is whenever the, there was four nuclear reactors in this power plant at Chernobyl, and one of them exploded. And so the core was open. But they show from the very beginning in the first couple of episodes how much the managers of this power plant kept saying, there's nothing to see here. There's no problem. Everything's under control. Things aren't really that bad. Nobody needs to be evacuated. And so they started telling that to the higher-ups, and it follows its way all the way up to the chain of command to Gorbachev, sitting in a boardroom with all of his ministers and generals. And one minister stands up, and he says, you know, it's not really that bad. Everything is going to be just fine because everything is under control. And they've actually measured the radiation at this power plant. It's only 360 rodents. It's about the equivalent of an X-ray. Everything is just fine. And Gorbachev says, great. Meeting adjourned. There's one man that was a nuclear physicist that stood up and he said, no. His name was Dr. Legasov. He said, stop. He said, you have no idea what you're dealing with here. He said, the reason they're giving you a reading of 360 rodents, it's because the meters that they use at that power plant, that's as high as they go. They're not telling you how it actually is. They're just telling you what they have. And based on this data that I'm seeing, that nuclear core is exposed and the radiation level is actually more like 15,000 rotgens. That's the equivalent of two of the bombs dropped on Hiroshima that's being emitted in radiation every single hour. And it's 20 hours since the explosion, which is 40 bombs. There's going to be another 48 tomorrow and another 48 the day after that. And if you don't do anything about that core and you just leave it there, it's going to radiate for the next 50,000 years. And on top of that, it's going to melt everything around it. And it's going to actually melt through the foundation of that power plant, and it's going to get down into the water reservoirs that are used to cool the plant. And when that happens, it's going to immediately vaporize 7,000 cubic meters of water. And it's going to cause a thermal explosion that's so powerful, it's going to blow up the other three reactors, and it's going to level everything in a 30-kilometer radius. And the shockwave is going to send out radiation in a 200-kilometer radius, and you're going to have multiple cities completely wiped out on top of incalculable rates of cancer and birth defects in the entire eastern half of Europe will be uninhabitable for the next 100 years. And everyone goes silent. And Gorbachev just says, do whatever you have to do to fix it. And he does. Dr. Legasov gave his life to fix it. And he went to the reactor and he gave his life cleaning it up because he had to go near the radiation. And by the time it was all done, he'd been exposed to so much that he only had a couple of years left on his life. You know, from the beginning, the Bible has told us the destructive power of the human heart. How in one moment of decision, the entire cosmos was fractured. And you and I were born with that same heart and that same problem. And repentance is the willingness to see it. 
Repentance is that opportunity to stop saying, everything's fine. Everything's okay. I've got everything under control. It's the opportunity to say, it's not. It's an opportunity to actually see the sin in your life that radiates out into your family, your marriage, your kids, and you can finally just say, there's so much destruction I don't even know about. Please, Jesus, do whatever it takes. Wash me, cleanse me, heal me, purge me. Do something new. And in that request, you have the opportunity to meet the righteous man who gave his life so that you might have new life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to your table only worthy because you have forgiven us and cleansed us with your blood. Your forgiveness is truly beyond anything we could understand. And our sin is beyond what we could really comprehend. And yet, would you help us to see it? Not for the sake of feeling miserable, but so we might run to your mercy. We might actually see us, see ourselves for what we are so that we can see you for who you are. That you are the God that died on the cross for our sin. Sins that we struggle to see. Sins that we struggle to take responsibility for. We come to your table this morning, we ask that you would strengthen us on this road of repentance. We ask that we would be a place where sin doesn't hide and that we would be a people that walk that road of repentance each and every day so that we might ultimately know you for who you are, for your goodness, your mercy, and your grace. We thank you for all these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.